And if you would please get out your copies of God's Word this morning as we look at Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, we're going to be in verses 11 through 32 today. This is probably one of the most famous parables uh, that Jesus ever told. This is one that has inspired many a sermon and many a great book. Uh, has also been the subject of this sermon as well. We're going to read the, through the entire passage, although I think we're only going to cover the first son today as we look at the parable of the prodigal son. Let us look at this together. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. This is Jesus speaking. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate for this My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and and asked what these things meant. And he said to them, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. 
It is fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let us go before our God once more and ask his blessing on our text today. Oh, Father, we have a beautiful passage before us today. Help us to see it in its multifaceted beauty. Help us to see ourselves in this story, to be honest with ourselves, so that we might get to partake in this joy that awaits us in this passage. Help us to see this, Lord God, in Jesus' name, amen. Today, we are marveling at one of the best short stories in all of literature. Indeed, it is so because it is based on a true story. In fact, it's the true, capital T, true story of the gospel itself. This is a picture of the joyful redemption and reception that awaits all those who would come to God in faith. This is the third parable in this chapter that has been following a similar theme of heaven's reception of a lost soul and the joy that that entails. But this parable is a little different than the previous two that we've looked at of the missing sheep and the missing coin. One Egyptian scholar, Ibrahim Said, put it this way. The shepherd in his search for the sheep and the woman in her search for the coin do not do anything out of the ordinary beyond what anyone in their place would do. But the actions of the father that he takes in the third story are unique, marvelous, divine actions, which had not been done by any father in the past. This parable is worth great consideration because this has something to say to the entire audience that's listening. If you remember back from last week at the beginning of chapter 15 that it was tax collectors and sinners as well as Pharisees and scribes. And this parable has something to say to them all. I have my two points today, which you can see in your outline. The first is that God embraces the repentant. God embraces the repentant. We're going to be focusing on that one today. And then next week, we're going to take a look at God entreats the resentful. I went back and forth the entire weekend as to whether or not I would make this into one sermon or two, making my wife quite nervous as to how I was going to present myself this morning. But I ultimately came to the conclusion last night uh, that this was going to be a two-parter because this is something I want us to take a look at. There are too many wonderful things I want us to see out of this passage, and there is just simply no way that we can go through it all uh, without talking a million miles a minute uh, to cover what's in this passage. So let us slowly savor the passage that's in front of us and see all the things that it has to say. So to begin in verse 11, we have the curtain rises on our parable and we're introduced to the cast we're going to look at this morning. There was a man who had two sons. This tells us who the focus is actually going to be on. The main character that we, we think is the prodigal son. 
mostly because that's the title that our ESV Bible translators have inserted into the passage. It's one of those things we have to remember when we see these big, bold things that are separated from the rest of the paragraph. That's not the scriptures. That's an outline form of what the passage is supposed to be talking about. Very useful in keeping track of what we're looking for. But sometimes these things don't quite get the point. The word prodigal originally meant generous. And what we should call this, and again, was actually the title of a wonderful book on this passage by Tim Keller. is called The Prodigal. It should have been called The Prodigal Father. The Generous Father, who, of course, is a stand-in for God. So if you, have a, if you would like a lovely book on this passage, it's a short book, but well worth the reading. It's called The Prodigal God by Timothy Keller. I would commend that to you. But here, uh, it was called the prodigal son, a long series of things we won't go into, but uh, we'll take it for now. This is the main character, is the father. But the father has two sons. And here, the youngest one approaches the father and tells him to give him his inheritance now. Now, this was not entirely unheard of, but it was always warned against. The way that you could divide up, if you wanted to divide up your inheritance beforehand, you could separate out this property uh, to the son. They would have access to the capital, but the father would expect to continue to get the interest off of the income. There would be some, something there for him, and one could not, in fact, sell the capital until after he was gone. But here in this passage, the son is not wanting to do that. He wants his capital, and he wants it now, and he wants to spend it. This would have been horrifically insulting. This would be basically saying to the father, I can't wait for you to be dead. But since I can't wait that long, I'm going to take my inheritance now, so give it to me. And the father does. He divides his property between them. Interestingly, the word that's underneath that term, property here with the father, it actually would be translated that he divided his life and gave to his son. The way this would work, the youngest son would get one portion, the oldest son would get a double portion. But here, this youngest son is taking his father's wealth, doubtless built up over generations, and takes it for himself. And here he goes on, divests the fortune, and gets ready to go, and spends all of his father's good gifts away in reckless living. It's what every sinner has done since the Garden of Eden, isn't it? In order for us to sin against our father, we have to use his resources to do it. When Adam and Eve took of the fruit of that tree, they had to use the hands and the eyes and the mouth and the mind that God gave them in order to do it. We are not powerful enough to even sin on our own. We have to use the gifts that he's given to us, the riches that he has bestowed upon us in order to sin against him, adding insult along to our crime. But this temptation, unfortunately, works again and again. Or held out the false promise of something beyond what we can get within the father's care. The younger son was unsatisfied with living at home amongst what we can, as we will see from this passage, 
was a very generous father, but he felt like he could live his life better his own way. He would spend the money that he was hoping to get in the future for himself as he chose. So he goes off to a far off place, taking on a new identity for himself as the man with money. If he finds a coat that he sees in the shop window, he takes it. No bottle of wine is too high up on the shelf for him to access. And he spends it quickly and irresponsibly and has all these friends who are willing to gather around him as long as the cash is still flowing. But like all things, it had its end. And he spent all that he had blowing generations worth of wealth in such a short period of time. And just in time for a famine, too. You can see how before we would have gotten to this famine, you could almost hear the older brother saying in Psalm 73, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, their pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness and their hearts overflow with follies. It's what this younger brother is experiencing. But there is pangs that are indeed coming. And that's what we see here in this famine. It's a very severe famine, strong famine in this country. If he had stayed nearby, perhaps he wouldn't have experienced this because he's gone off into the far country. He's walked in to this disaster. And it says in verse 14, And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. What an understatement. You're in a far country with no friends and no money. He's just beginning to be in need. So what is he going to do? Verse 15. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. This doesn't hit us like it would the rest of the audience at this time. But this was as low as you could possibly sink as a Jewish person. To be working for a Gentile, caring after pigs, a dishonorable, unclean creature. This would have been difficult work. This would have been separated far from the city, would have been out in the wilderness keeping track of these pigs. It would have been dangerous work because you had to keep track of where the pigs were going and make sure that they weren't eaten up by wild beasts that could just as easily eat you would have been isolating for months at a time. And it was also for him quite hungry work. So he didn't really seem to have anything to eat as he was considering eating what the pigs were eating. This is as deep as it goes. He literally cannot go any further down than this except to die. This is it. It's as shameful as he could possibly be. And then... We could look at this thing and we would think if we were imagining in the Pharisees' audience, those who are listening to this story, who might be thinking of this and saying, good. The boy gets what he deserves. Here he is. He insults his father. He blows generations' worth of money. He spends it all in reckless living. 
dishonoring God and everybody else. He deserves to be in this place. This is what we see in verse 73, right? They'll be destroyed in the end. This is probably what they were hoping for. That's the problem, of course, with the Pharisees. They can't see a way back. Repentance seems impossible from here. Redemption seems ludicrous to even think about from this position. But there is a way back. Even from the lowest of lows, we see in verse 17. But when he came to himself, the young man receives a realization. Leon Morris comments on this passage and saying, hardship has a wonderful way of bringing people to face facts. That fact is that this young man is not able to live life on his own. He is in desperate need here. And the prodigal remembers the generosity of his father. He says here, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. The hired servant would have been our equivalent of a day laborer. Someone who would have been hired for one particular event and would be living from day to day, hoping to find job to job. Actually would have been lower on the social totem pole than a household slave. Because at least the slave was considered part of the household, part a member of the family. Deep connection. But here, this shows us our first hint of the generosity of the father, is that he gives his day-to-day servants, his day laborers, more than enough bread, even for those that he doesn't have any real emotional attachment to. And our young man sees this. So he forms his plan, verse 18. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. As we see this, we can see what's going on in his heart. I don't think this is just the son who is trying to figure out some sort of maneuvering to get back or, to, or just a, a sole survivor instinct that's getting him through. He is recognized and is honest that he is in more than just physical trouble. He's also sinned, not just against his father, but against God. He recognizes that his actions have been severely wrong and is ready to come back to his father. And he's willing to even be tried to just become a day laborer, just someone that could be tangentially related to the family, even if it might just be in orbit around his household. He's not expecting to be a son. And maybe the Pharisees who might have had an issue with him coming back to his father at all are harumphing and thinking, well, maybe at least he understands what he's done. At this time, for an action that would be as dishonorable as this, the father would have been expected to hold a funeral for his son, the idea that he was dead. So perhaps the Pharisees thinking that this guy's on the right track. At least he understands what he's done. But then we get to the father in verse 20. It says, he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. How is that possible? 
Could it be that the Father was always looking for him? Always scanning that horizon? Hoping against hope that maybe one day his son would return? And maybe now this day has come. But his son, who had lots of friends at the start of our journey, he comes back alone. He has no shoes and is wearing tattered clothing. Flies are probably still buzzing around him from being around the pigs for all that time. It's obvious the money is gone. That everything has been spent. Honestly, from a Middle Eastern perspective, it was bad enough that he left. But does he need to compound the shame by coming back in such a state? Now he's having to show everybody else what a royal mistake he has made. And how he has dishonored the family and is coming back to parade it before the village. He would be expected, if he was to dare make this sort of return, he was expected to at least have some sort of gift. Something to give the father. But the boy doesn't even have shoes for himself. He is empty-handed. Clearly, generations of wealth building have been cast to the pigs. So what's a father to do? Is he going to let his son make his way through the village? A village that would shower him with scorn and dishonor for his behavior. A village, in times like this, would have, in this situation, would have, would have performed the, um, would have performed a, what's called a cutting off ceremony. What would be done is they would take burned corn and burned nuts, put it inside of an earthenware pot, and shatter it in front of the person who would have been like this in front of this younger son and would have been chanting as they did so, you are cut off from your people. Would have nothing more to do with him. Is the father going to allow his son to go through that? It's nothing the son doesn't deserve. But the father doesn't do that. Instead, the father runs out to meet the son, falls onto him, and then kisses him repeatedly. The term that he uses there, kissed, is a present term. It means ongoing action. So he's kissing him again and again. This is well beyond a polite greeting. He's showering him with love. And to do this in some way dishonors himself as he does so. The idea that he would be running would be hard enough for the Middle Eastern audience to accept. Older noblemen in the Middle East do not run. Everybody else works on your schedule, not the other way around. Plus, in order to run, because everyone was wearing tunics at this time, in order to do this, you would need to hike up your tunic to quite a level to be able to have your legs free to be able to run. So this would mean you're running through the village with your bare legs, something that would have been seen as dishonorable at the time. Doubtless there would have been snickering in the village as he zooms by everyone's house. But just imagine the hush that would fall over the village as they see this demonstration of profound forgiveness as he comes and embraces his son. The earthenware pot is set down. There's no need for a cutting off ceremony today. Clearly by taking this decisive action, the father demonstrates in front of this entire village 
that reconciliation has been achieved and the father has welcomed his son back into the fold. The son begins his prepared speech, but he doesn't even get to finish. And instead, the father calls out his servants to quickly get the best robe. This would have been the equivalent of a tuxedo today for his son to wear. He gets a ring out for his son. If this was a signet ring, then this would have been a symbol of sonship and authority that was being restored to this boy. And then giving him sandals, slaves walked around barefoot, but sons wore shoes. And this is what he is giving to him. His son has returned. And there is going to be celebration. So he goes out and he has the fatted calf killed. This would have been an animal that would have been reserved for religious celebrations or once-in-a-lifetime kind of celebrations. Meat-eating was something that we take quite for granted today and have access to on an almost daily basis. Meat was actually rather rarely consumed at this time. And the fact that this was a fatted calf, a special calf, this was as great of a celebration as you could imagine. This would be, as to put it in modern terms, this would have called for two 20-pound birds and a couple of Boston butts for ourselves to lay out a feast for celebration. It's not something you do every day. Or if you do, please invite me over. I would love to participate. But here you can hear the heart of this man. When he kills this fatted calf, he can't imagine any other thing that would give him more cause for celebration than his son coming home. You almost have to kill the fatted calf at this point. What's going to be better? As his son arrives at the house. It is an extravagant celebration and killing a fatted calf would have, been the, would have meant the entire village is invited. Everyone is going to come and share in the celebration at this moment. There's a lot more that we could say. But I want us to sit on this point for a moment. The happy reception of this, for all intents and purposes, this miscreant of a son. We looked at those other parables and we saw a sheep and a coin. We looked at those things and we saw the inherent value between those two objects. A shepherd was to go and find a sheep. That would mean if he lost one, that means that's just that much less wool that you can't sell. Or the woman who was looking for her ten, the one of her missing 10 coins, that's 10% of her savings. That represented a significant part of her money. To go and find that was to find something inherently valuable that contributed to that life. But what is it that this son can contribute? Not much. We're talking about bare benefit. From a social perspective, all this can mean is dishonor for the father. Doubtless there will be some villagers that will look at this and say he's doing a wrong thing. This is a foolish father that would bring someone like that back into the camp. We've got a third less of the money than we had before, and now we've got another stomach to feed. How long is this son going to stick around? It's a cost to bring him back. But yet you can, the joy of this father is infectious. There's no way that we could see this 
passage and this happiness of the father and not wish to share in his joy. That he would be willing to come and bring his son back into this way. Now the amazing thing is, is we need to step out of this passage and remind ourselves that this is reality. We can look at this passage and say this is a story. A made-up fiction of a really generous father. Who's really like that? Turns out that the one who's really like that is your God. And that's astonishing. That he would be like that. There was a song from the theatrical performance of Les Miserables. And one of the characters is dreaming of a day gone by. One of the lines is a a day gone by of dreaming of a God who is forgiving. It seems so counterintuitive that there would be a God who would be generous like this. Because we look all around the world, we look into our own hearts and we don't see that kind of generosity. Life doesn't work like that. You don't just get back into your own family after treating them like that. It goes against everything that we can think that God would be like this. That the one who holds our eternity would be this generous with us. But it's true. And if it could be possible, the father who is ours, one who would want to welcome sinners like us, that he would go even farther than this father did. (coughs) Excuse me. This father killed the fatted calf in celebration. But our father sacrificed his own son to bring us back into the fold. It was a tremendous sacrifice that God made in order to bring us back to show that kind of love and to turn away that wrath that was aimed at us. This is one of those stories that truly does seem too good to be true. But it is. That's why I think this is the third story that Jesus is telling us of this same concept that heaven joyfully receives repentant people. Because it does seem so out of character. It seems so against the way the rest of the world works. It's against how every other religion works, as we've covered before. Every other religion would say you need to bring something back. Clean yourself up before you come to God. That's not the case at all. It's come to God and receive a cleansing. Come to God and receive an acceptance. You can't become acceptable. But God in his mercy will bring you to himself. And here, this son has returned into the joy of his father. And what's amazing is, is what he is experiencing here as likely is better than anything he could have experienced on his own. It's one of the things that we think about when we think about God's governance for our lives and his love for us. 
We see that uh, C.S. Lewis is described, it says, God is a hedonist. God loves to give pleasure to his creatures. And we can see this in this passage today. God loves joy. God loves happiness. And this is what he promises to us. Is this always going to be experienced here in this life? No. But the joyful reception into his home, where we are forever with the Lord, is what he promises to us, even those of us who believe to be far beyond his care. And what does this mean for us? What are we supposed to take away from this portion of the story? Whether we realize it or not, as we'll see next week, we are like both of these sons in one respect or another. But that no matter what we've done, no matter how far we've strayed, there is hope for us that we can be brought back and be restored, be reconciled to our God. That's not only true of ourselves, but that's true of the prodigal sons in our own lives. Those that we would look at and say, where is the hope for that? How do you come back from this scenario? Thing is, is you're not coming back from that. God is bringing you back from that. It's the father's love that drew the son back to him. It wasn't the son's clever thinking. It was the father's love. And as we saw in our Old Testament passage today, God can take a field of dry bones and make them into an army. He can take a spiritually dry people, reconstitute them, and bring them to himself. That's our joy that we have in this passage. That's the hope that we can rest on. When we come back next week, we'll look at the second half of this parable. And we'll see how the Father is even kind to those who are not sharing in the joy of those who come. But that will be for another time. For now, let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time that we've had together. I thank you for this passage and its enormous comfort that it brings to us today. I pray that we would believe this, that you are kind, that you are good, and that you love. I pray that as we, <coughs> as we come to our Lord's Supper, this celebration, I pray that we would be reminded of this great love that you've shown to us today and how you have made us worthy to come to this table. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.